Burning Books with Eric Beck-Rubin. Hello, and welcome to episode 20, the 20th anniversary of Burning Books, a podcast dedicated to discussing, celebrating, exploring, etc. Great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things, books that are complete junk. Today, we have the perfect antidote to the vagaries and lunacies and length and interminability of a Dostoevsky novel. Yeah, I'm still hurting from that one. This novel is small, neat, sharp, focused, sub-200 pages, and it's by the Belgian author Amélie Nothum. The English title, which in my opinion has been erroneously translated, but we'll get to that later, is Hygiene and the Assassin. It was published in 1992 and translated by Alison Anderson. This book will not slash your soul to ribbons, but it will inject an uncomfortable amount of poison into your veins. I've been wanting to read an Amélie Notham novel for a while, more or less for the reasons mentioned above, short and, according to reputation at least, brutal. In that way, a little like the books of the Japanese novelist Yukio Mishima, except I had a fair sense that Notham's novels would make sense to me, as Mishima's never quite have, but that too is a discussion for another podcast. Notham is also an ingenue. She began publishing in her mid-twenties and has been prodigiously productive ever since. It must be nice to have not only so many ideas, but such facility in communicating them. Hygiene and the Assassin, Notham's debut, begins by introducing the reader to the ostensible subject of the story, an 83-year-old novelist at the end of his career and life, who goes by the unlikely name Prétextat Tache. I'd apologize for the likely mispronunciation of the character's name, except that I think it's part of a number of tricks being played by the author on the reader throughout the course of the book. This protagonist is a fiction writer who tells fictional tales all within the confines of a novel. So the artificial, like an octopus, is at the center of the book, and its tentacles are everywhere. The fact that the character has not only a made-up name, but an obviously made-up name, is just one of this animal's manifestations. In any case, that first name, Pretextat, which sounds like something Mayan, is actually Roman in origin, and the connotation of imperiousness sits well with this man. He's moody, bossy, pushy, domineering, he's a bully. They say, they who are they, that Prétextat Tache is based on the mid-20th century French author Céline, who shares with Tache a healthy sense of superiority with extreme strains of misanthropy and specializes, as is so often the case, in misogyny and anti-Semitism. Before the war, Céline looked forward with zeal to the Nazi takeover of France, and after the war he was convicted in absentia of collaboration. But because this is France we're talking about, he was granted amnesty for his wartime acts in 1951 and returned to the country, which didn't stop him from being a lifelong vociferous Holocaust denier. Tash, however, is not an anti-Semite. He's certainly a misogynist, though, and more generally a misanthrope. But he's the kind, and perhaps they're all this way, that needs the company of others to demonstrate how much he dislikes them. For these reasons, he reminds me less of Celine and more of V.S. Naipaul. Both the fictional Tash and the actual Naipaul are Nobel laureates, and if you have any knowledge of Naipaul's books, or the contents of his diaries, as uncovered in the Sean French biography, or if you've read the excellent Servidia's Shadow by Paul Theroux, you'll sense a doppelganger of V.S. Naipaul in Pretext Tash. 
He's nasty, brutish, and even when he's asleep, deeply unpleasant. Hygiene and the Assassin begins with the news that Tash has been diagnosed with a rare, in fact made up, form of cancer, cartilage cancer, and his response is to take the unusual step of allowing his secretary to schedule four journalists to interview him during his last weeks on Earth. The novel is shaped around the scaffolding of these four interviews. In fact, the first three are really a setup for the fourth and last. In those first three interviews, we learn about Tash, his work, and his way in the world, to use the title of a Naipaul novel. The first thing that confronts us, or rather that Tash directs our attention to, is his appearance. He's not an attractive man. Not that Tash would dance around the edges. He's more direct. Four chins, piggy eyes, a nose like a spud, no more hair on my head than on my cheeks. My neck is one roll of fat upon the other. My jowls droop. And, out of consideration for you, I've only described my face. Have you always been this fat? The journalist said. At the age of 18, I was already like this. You can say obese. It doesn't bother me. Yes, obese, but we can still look at you without trembling. I'll grant you that I could have been more repugnant. I might have had a blotchy face, covered in warts. As it is, you have very nice skin. It's white and smooth. I can tell it must be very soft to the touch. A eunuch's complexion, my good man. There's something almost grotesque about having such skin on my face, particularly on a chubby, clean-shaven face. In fact, my head resembles a fine pair of smooth, soft buttocks. My head inspires laughter rather than disgust, although there are times I would have preferred to inspire disgust. It's more invigorating. I would never have imagined that you suffer from your looks, the journalist said. I don't suffer. Suffering is for other people, for those who see me. I don't see myself. I never look at myself in the mirror. I would suffer if I had chosen another life, but for the life I lead, this body suits me fine. He's also described by one of the journalists as a graphomaniac eunuch. Which, can we hear that again? Graph-o-maniac eunuch. Right. Yet for all the words devoted to Tasha's physical description, Tash would have the interviewer and reader believe that he is indifferent to it, much as he is indifferent to most of the outside world. The story is set up during the lead to the first Gulf War. Yes, there was one before this one. These were the days of Operation Desert Storm, General Schwarzkopf. If I use words like brilliant, it would really be an under-description of the absolutely superb job that they did in breaching the so-called impenetrable barrier. And what would turn out to be the prosecution of war on CNN. Tash is asked several times for his opinions on what would turn out to be the clash between most of the Western world and what seemed like 43 Iraqi troops, but he's not interested in answering. In fact, he says he barely notices there's a war on. Sure, he sees the news, but that's only when the commercials stop. The commercials, they, according to Tash, they are the real viewing. And if the attitude of complete disinterest comes as a surprise from this man who has an opinion, if not a snap judgment, on nearly everything, buckle up, because there are more surprises to come. For one, this author of 22 novels has not written a thing for the last half of his life. Yep, the books keep getting published, but he completed them long before. To hear Tash tell it, he's been spending the last four decades mostly eating. No, really. Most of the book is dialogue form, and Tash tries, and often succeeds, in bossing the talk back round to his favorite subject, food. Goose fat, powdered milkshakes, Brandy Alexander's calf tongues. The four journalists have come expecting material for a career-summarizing profile, but what they get is a recipe for morbid obesity. 
Gradually, a picture begins to form around the protagonist. Pretextat Tash, celebrated novelist, is in fact a kind of anti-writer. He's indifferent to himself and to the world, seemingly physically and psychologically insensible. Wouldn't we expect precisely the opposite from novelists, people who write about the workings of ourselves and others? At the same time, though, Tash is presented as the archetypal novelist, even a parody of a novelist. I've already made a number of comparisons to Naipaul, and there is the noted connection to Céline. But let's look at the qualities that Notham herself piles on her worshipped novelist. He's a misery, a drunk, a reckless person. It's certainly reckless to decide that writing is your means of generating income. He's cruel, he's belligerent. He belittles the many who have not read his novels, as well as those who've said they've read his novels, but probably haven't. And as for those who have read his work, he's convinced that they don't really understand what he's written. Nobody understands him. Nobody's that intelligent. Tash is also a person quick to categorize others so he can make characters out of them and then dismiss those characters. He makes individuals into caricatures and then pricks those cartoons with pins until they're deflated. After the first three interviews, the scorned journalists meet in a cafe across the street and discuss their trials. The discussions they have go to the problem of trying to understand who Tash is. Under these conditions, are we justified in continuing our interviews? Tash would surely reply that we must be two-faced bastards to dare talk about justification in our profession. That is certainly what he would say, but he isn't the Pope, after all. We're under no obligation to put up with his dreadful nonsense. The problem is that his dreadful nonsense stinks of truth. Here we go, he's got you jumping through hoops. I'm sorry, but I have no respect for the guy anymore. He's too full of himself. It's just as he said, you're ungrateful. He gives you the dream of a story, and the only way you can think of to thank him is by heaping scorn on him. But you didn't hear how he insulted me? Precisely. That's why you're so full of rage. I can't wait until it's your turn. Then we'll have a good laugh. I can't wait until it's my turn either. And did you hear what he said about women? Oh, he's not completely wrong on that score. Shame on you. It's a good job there are no women around to hear you. Actually, whose turn is it tomorrow? Don't know him, and he hasn't come to introduce himself. Who does he work for? We don't know. Don't forget that Gravelin, his secretary, has been asking each of us for a copy of our recordings. That's the least we owe him. That guy is a saint. How many years has he been working for Tash? It can't have been a Sunday picnic. No, but it must be fascinating to work for a genius. Genius has nothing to do with it. Actually, why does Gravelin want to listen to the tapes? The better to know his tormentor. That I can understand. I wonder how he can put up with that fat slob. Stop calling Tash a fat slob. Don't forget who he is. As far as I'm concerned, as of this morning, there is no more Tash. He will always be a fat slob and nothing more. We should never meet writers. So, hero? Anti-hero? Nothom enjoys her character too much to define him as one or the other. Which is not to say she doesn't develop the questions. However, the way she does is not as expected, and it's the subject of the fourth interview, which takes up the second half of the novel. So, the showdown has been set. Pretextat Tash versus three hapless male interviewers. They ask questions, he dodged them, sometimes outright, sometimes by demeaning the questions, sometimes by demeaning the people who asked the questions. Tash swats these interlocutors like a bull's tail flicking at fleas. But this all changes in interview number four. Who are you? What the devil are you doing here? Today is January 18th, Monsieur Tash, and this is the day I've been assigned to meet you. Didn't your colleagues tell you that? 
I haven't seen them. I have nothing to do with those people. A point in your favor, but you should have been warned. Your secretary, Monsieur Gravelin, had me listen to the tapes yesterday evening. I am fully aware of the circumstances. So you know what I think of you, and you come here all the same? Yes. Good. Well done. That's very brave of you. And now you can leave. No. You've pulled off your stunt. What more do you need? Do you want me to sign a certificate for you? No, Monsieur Tosh. I really would like to speak to you. Listen, this is very amusing, but there are limits to my patience. The prank is finished. Now out you go. It's out of the question. I was given permission by Monsieur Gravelin, just like all the other journalists. So I'm staying. That Gravelin is a traitor. I told him to tell all those women's magazines to go to hell. I don't work for a woman's magazine. What? Are you telling me men's magazines now hire females? It's nothing new, Monsieur Tosh. Well, shit. What next? If they start hiring females, they'll end up hiring Negroes and Arabs and Iraqis. And this is a Nobel Prize winner saying such tactful things? Nobel Prize for literature, not Nobel Peace Prize, thank God. Thank God, indeed. Madame is playing the fine wit? Mademoiselle. The fourth interviewer is a woman, which makes one difference from her fellow journalists. Another difference is that, unlike her so-called colleagues, she's not a pushover. In fact, a dominant submissive relationship is quickly established between interviewer and subject, with the female journalist, Nina, threatening to walk out of the interview and Tash cravenly apologizing to make her stay. Actually, the exchange is more or less implausible, but the reader gets over it because there are other things to attend to. Among them is the obvious distinction between Nina and those who preceded her. Unlike the others who were drafted to interview Tash on short notice, Nina has been preparing for this interview for years, possibly even decades. While the male journalists admit, under little pressure, that they have only read this and that by the author, Nina has read Tash's entire oeuvre. Moreover, we get the sense Nina isn't one of those readers that Tash so easily dismissed as not knowing what they were reading. She knows exactly what she's read, and proof is that she's read a novel by Tash that seems to have disappeared into the mists of time, an unfinished manuscript that was never published called Hygiene and the Assassin. Now, to get to that title. The original French is L'hygiène de l'assassin, the hygiene of the assassin. The slight difference between language, in French it's of, in English it's and, does make a diff. It's because of his sense of hygiene that Tash has come to be the person he is. It is what has made him the assassin. To elaborate fully in this regard would be spoiling the book. But it makes a difference that hygiene and assassin are directly linked, as they are in the original French. And it's strange that in an otherwise eminently clear translation, there's an error in the title. It makes the reader wonder, for a second, what else might have been lost. But that doubt more or less evaporates, because there's plenty of other good stuff in this book. The latter half of the novel does not get around to answering the one big question of the first half, at least, it was a big question for me, whether Tash is archetypal novelist or archetypal anti-novelist, or whether the archetypal novelist is both one and the other. The interview with Nina dodges this by having Tash explain that if he is a paradigm for the archetypal novelist, it's because he's an assassin. An idea that is elaborated upon, though not fully, towards the end of the book. What, Tash says, didn't you know that assassins are the very people who have the greatest chance of receiving a Nobel Prize? Just look at Kissinger, Gorbachev. Yes, but you won the Nobel Prize for literature. Precisely. 
Nobel Peace Prize winners are often assassins, but the literature winners are always assassins. It's impossible to have a serious discussion with you. I've never been more serious. Metterlink, Tagore, Pirandello, Moriac, Hemingway, Pasternak, Kawabata, all assassins? You didn't know? No. You'll have learned a few things from me then. May I know your source of information? Pretextatash doesn't need sources of information. Sources of information are for ordinary people. Like I said, it's a dodge, one of many. And though this question about authors, authorship, and writing is carefully set up at the beginning of the novel, and Peter's away by the end, it's another thing that you can forgive, because something else takes over. Something that's possibly as interesting, if not more so. That's the part about hygiene, specifically a comparison of the present Tash to his surprisingly graceful, youthful, even beautiful younger self. In the matter of how and why this latter-day Jabba the Hutt left his androgynous, Peter Pan-like childhood self behind. The novel becomes, in a clinical and disturbing way, an inquiry into puberty, something that I did not see coming at the beginning of the story. Usually, when a book takes a turn this way, leaving the six-lane highway for the woods, it's confusing and often disappointing, if not terrible. It's a sign the author has become bored with his or her premise, or is unable to work with it, or just can't leave it behind but doesn't know what to do with it. But that's not the case in Hygiene and the Assassin. The reader may experience dissatisfaction with the end of this novel, I know I did, but the fluid writing, the pace, the many clever verbal turns between the opponents, Nina and Tash, remain present throughout. If you're lost at some points, at least you have good company. Notham's debut makes me interested in reading more from her, particularly if we read this first novel as a signal of intent. What kind of writer does Notham want to be? What kind of legacy does she want to create? Is it one that, like this novel, confounds, infuriates, remains vivid and unpredictable to the end? If she manages to accomplish these goals in books that are short, sweet, and sharp, well, what more can a reader ask for? I understand that Notham tends to write her novels in alternating pairs, straight fiction followed by fiction that seems autobiographical. My suspicion, with absolutely no backing, is that this novel contains large elements of autobiography. If this is, in part, in large part, a story about how she wants her career to unfold, what she wishes to leave behind, what she values in a writer and in books, how could it not get to the heart of the author herself? It's a work of wish fulfillment, a public look into a private self. And if we go along with this line of reasoning, we find it thrilling that a writer this good, a mind this sharp, wants to be part Nina and part Tash, equally vicious, each in her and his own way. Next up on Burning Books is a review of the scorching classic, Darkness at Noon, by Arthur Kessler. As mentioned, Burning Books is part of the Litopia network of podcasts, and you can hear back episodes, subscribe, and reach me there via the email the show button, all by going to litopia.com, spelled the way it sounds, and following the link to Burning Books. I also enjoy getting your tweets, nasty and nice. I'm at Burning Books Pod. My thanks to Hakan Ozgan for the music. There are several ways to thank someone. So, let's start with the easiest. Teşekkürler. To Peter Cox, executive producer of the show. The second word is aluminum. Aluminium. And as always, go Jays.
Hi, this is RJ Ellery, author of The Dark and Broken Hearts, and you are listening to Radio Latopia. Hello, this is Gary Bushell, and I'd like to invite you to try my new show here on Litopia, entitled, somewhat functionally, I think, The Gary Bushell Talk Show. As you may infer from the title, it's a show where people talk to me. But that really doesn't begin to do it justice. My guests are household names from entertainment, politics, the arts and sciences. You'll recognise the names, but you've never heard them talk like they do on my show. Exposing big ideas, revealing even bigger secrets. Uncensored conversation, no spin, no bull. Straight from the heart, direct to you. Join me, the Gary Bushell Talk Show. It does what it says. (laughs) 